All right, Job chapter 2. I'm going to read uh, all of chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he'll curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself. And he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and they wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. Father, we come with uh, soberness to this book. Father, it, it disturbs us. To see suffering like this, God, it frightens us to realize that this sort of pain and loss could come even to our own lives, to those who are close to us. So, Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us, Father, to think rightly, to respond rightly to suffering to you and to others who are suffering. Father, I pray that you would speak to us today through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. So you're going to notice something. Chapter 2 starts pretty much like chapter 1 did. In chapter 1, we had a long section describing who Job was, all of his blessings, all the, the great stuff that was in his life. We don't have that, but it picks up kind of with this scene in heaven again. Okay, so This heavenly staff meeting where the angels are appearing before God. Satan appears before God as well. And Job uh, is again brought up by God. So God says, you know, hey Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Uh, again, he recounts that he's a blameless man, he's upright, he fears God, he turns away from evil. And even though, and then God recounts what, what Satan had said in chapter 1. So let me remind you of that. What Satan said in chapter 1 was that Job didn't really love God. What Satan said in chapter 1 was that, that if, if God took away Job's stuff, if God took away his blessing, if God took away his prosperity, if God took away his family, if, if those things were taken away, now actually God didn't take away any of that stuff, but if God allowed it, okay, if God will allow Satan to take that stuff away, then Satan says, Job won't love you. The only reason he loves you is because you've done good things in his life. 
I thought about getting some cups up here. I, I wish I would have done this, actually. And, you know, I've had a cup with money on the outside and with family on the outside and another one with maybe job or, or status or something like that. And then kind of a big one with God. And, and just kind of the, the, the main premise of the book of Job is if one of those or all of those are taken away, is your faith still intact? Is your joy still in God? Are you, are you able to weather that, holding on, clinging on to God? Or do you turn from God? Do you, do you curse Him? Do you, does He mean nothing to you anymore if those things are taken away? And that's really kind of the premise of the book of Job. And so chapter 2 opens up. Uh, having, having, having the evidence of chapter 1. So what is the evidence of chapter 1? Well, again, God moved the fence, okay? That's what happens in verse 6. It's what's happened in chapter 1. God moves the fence. We, what we saw in chapter 1 is really an interesting thing. We saw that, that God had put a fence around Job, and Satan kind of implies that that was just the case. And, and so from that, right, basically what we imply is that God puts fences around us, Right? So, so evil is not caused by God. We talked a lot about that last time. It's caused by Satan. Satan is the one who's evil. Satan is the one who does evil things, okay? But God does allow, okay? God does allow. And aren't we glad because if God didn't allow evil, what would that mean for us, right? We'd be in trouble, okay? Because we're sinners. We've got sin in our own lives, okay? So God is patient with that. But we saw that God had a fence around Job. And so in chapter 1, God moves that fence and allows Satan to have some room to afflict Job. Okay, well, in chapter 2... Because it didn't work, all right, and basically Satan's like, well, okay, sure, Job still trusts you, but, but if you afflict him personally, his own body, his own flesh, his own health, then he'll turn on you. He'll curse God. He'll curse you to your face. And so in verse 6, God moves that fence a little further. God stretches that fence out to allow Satan, the enemy, to afflict Job's physical body. You memorized the verse this week. I hope you did. John 10, 10 says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Remember that verse? Okay, so that tells us that, that Satan, that's what he wants to do to you. Okay, that, that's what he would do to you had God not put a fence around you. Have you given thanks to God this morning for the fence that's around you? Have you given thanks to God that, that indeed this calamity has not hit your life today? We should. So immediately, as the fence is moved, if you will, using that analogy, Satan goes to work. Verse 7, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. We get a picture of the severity of of this disease, whatever Job has here. In chapter 7, verse 5, he says, My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens and then breaks out afresh. Later in chapter 30, verse 30, it goes on to describe the, 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 the continual pain and suffering that Job is in. You know, thinking about last week, I can't imagine an emotional pain worse than losing all your possessions and then your ten children all in one day. I can't imagine that kind of agony, suffering. Okay, but I, I think what we see here in chapter 2 and what is probably true is that Physical suffering is maybe in a a separate category. I'm not saying it's worse or better, but I think it's in a separate category in that it weakens you. I mean, Job is literally wasting away here. He's so disfigured from this disease. Did you notice? His friends don't recognize him when they come up. Have you ever ever seen somebody so sick? I've had this happen. That you didn't recognize them when you came into their hospital room? Okay, that's happening to Job. All right, and so now not only does he have all this emotional trauma, but now he also has the physical weakening of his body. 
And now in verse 9, his wife speaks. Might have been kind of a mystery to you, maybe why you haven't heard anything about his wife to this point, huh? You know, I mean, in, in chapter 1, God seems to give parameters to say you can take anything that's his except you can't touch him. Okay, and so that would seem to include his wife, but Satan does not touch his wife. And maybe the reason is because now his wife almost joins Satan in the temptation. She's used of Satan, okay? We probably should be a little bit generous and gracious with her because I want you to remember she's lost everything that Job's lost, okay? She's lost all of their possessions. She's lost their security. She's lost 10 kids. 10 kids, moms, okay? So, so maybe we should cut her a little slack here, but here's what his wife says to Job, to her husband. Verse 9, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. You see, she, she's already given up. She's already said, you know what? I'm, I'm out on God. I, you know, this happened. We weren't protected. You know, this calamity has come upon us. Now you're sick. Now you're wasting away. Why don't you just curse God and die? Again, I think she's, she's being played by Satan here. That can happen. Did you know that? You can be used by Satan, a voice of Satan. Matthew 16, it happens to Peter, the apostle Peter. Remember when Jesus is revealing that he's going to go to the cross, he's going to be beaten and suffered and he's going to be crucified. And Peter says to him in Matthew 16, 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So basically he's telling Jesus, don't go to the cross. You shouldn't go. And Jesus turns to him in verse 23 and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, Peter's perspective was so skewed that he was actually, he was speaking out of temptation, not out of truth. And so Job's wife tempts him to curse God and die. Job's response to his wife is is very much similar to chapter 1. We kind of get more, kind of another look at his theology here. In verse 10, he tells his wife, he says, You speak as one of the foolish women who would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Very similar to what he said in chapter 1. If you remember in chapter 1, verse 21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So he's hitting on again that truth that, that listen, everything we've got is from God. I mean, we, don't, we don't have anything that we've gained. Okay, we don't have anything we've, we've gotten on our own. All that we have is from God. And God is sovereign in the heavens. Remember Psalm 115? God, God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. And basically Job is saying, you know, should we receive the good from God and then reject Him if it's something we don't want? Verse 10 is a very key verse. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, Verse chapters 1 and 2 are incredibly valiant chapters of faith. This guy who, who, who holds his integrity in a situation that most of us cannot fathom. But I, I want you to realize that, that suffering has a way of wearing you down, doesn't it? You know, it's one thing to have the accident, you're in the hospital, you cry out to God, you hold your integrity, you're, you're falling on Him. But you know, if... If that suffering continues day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, it becomes incredibly difficult to handle. That happens in Job's life. And in chapter 3, we find Job finally speaking, finally addressing. If, if I can, uh, can kind of lay out for you the, the, the format of Job, 
you have his three friends, and they, they'll speak, and Job will, will counter, or Job will speak, and they'll counter, okay? So you got Job speaking, then you got Eliphaz speaking, then Job, then, then uh, Bildad, then Job, then Zophar, then Job, then Eliphaz, then Job, and you have that like three times, okay? And when Job speaks in chapter 3, let me, let me summarize the entire chapter 3 in one word, why? Why? Okay, notice, notice, look at him. Verse 11, why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Verse 12, why did the knees, he's talking about his mother, why did the knees receive me or why the breast that I should nurse? Verse uh, 16, why was, I not, why was I not as a hidden stillborn child and as infants who never see the light? Verse 20, why is light given to them, to him who's in misery? Verse 23, why is light given to a man who, whose way is hidden from God and hedged in? Basically, Job is saying, why am I even alive? I, I don't want to be alive. That's what he's saying. As you go on through Job's various speeches, those, those almost get more intense, okay? And Job, because of the unbearable weight of, of, of pressure and, and stress and sorrow and grief and sickness and pain, Job doesn't want to live anymore. Now, before you're too quick to judge, let me remind you of some other men who bore heavy weights who got to that point in their life. Moses, in Numbers chapter 11, verses 10 through 15, asked God to take his life. Elijah, remember after, after Mount Carmel, after he battles the 450 prophets of Mount Carmel, and he comes down, and he thinks it's all over, and he gets a call from Jezebel that says, by this time tomorrow, you're a dead man. And then he goes out in the wilderness, and he sits down under a broom tree, and he says, God, I've had enough. Take my life. I don't want to live anymore. Jonah. After he preaches in Nineveh, there's a great repentance. He's sitting up on the hillside to see what's going to happen. And Jonah says in Jonah 4, 3, he says, I, I don't, I don't want to live. I just want to die. God, take my life. I, I want you to see that people come to that point in their lives where the pain is so intense and unbearable that they don't want to live anymore. Okay, that's a reality. But what I also want you to see, and, and I just feel that I need to take this opportunity because we don't talk about this hardly ever, but I want to take this opportunity to tell you, to remind you that not Job, not Moses, not Elijah, not Jonah, not one of those guys acted on their impulse not to live. Does that make sense? These guys didn't commit suicide. They could have, but they didn't. Okay? They didn't want to live anymore, but these guys were the kind of men, the kind of believers, the kind of faith-filled men who even in unbearable pain and suffering would not take their lives into their own hands. They wouldn't rebel against God. They wouldn't sin in that way. But they're at a point in their life where, where they don't see any hope. You know, we talk a lot about depression in our, in our culture. And uh, I don't know how you think about depression, but the way that I tend to think about depression is, is a condition in which you can't see the hope that's in front of you. Job 7, 6 is, a, is an interesting uh, um, verse. Actually, 7, 7, not 7, 6, 7, 7. In Job 7, 7, Job says this, Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. Do you hear what Job says there? My eye will never again see good. 
Okay, now, now you know the rest of the story. Remember we talked about Vantage Point last, last week? That's where Daniel was at, at in the parking lot, and I was way over there in the field. From my vantage point, he's beating on kids, and he's be fired. You know, but from, from somebody else's vantage point, he's, he's rescued a child from fire, okay? It just depends on where you're at looking at it. Now, you and I know, man, Job, hold on, you know? Hold on, because when chapter 42 comes around, God's going to restore everything to you, right? God, God's going to restore all, all your, your, your wealth times two and, and your kids and, and your wife's going to love you again. And, and God's going to do all that. But Job doesn't have that vantage point. And you, and you can imagine, Job believes that he will never see another good day again. And that's rational. That's logical. I mean, he's lost all of his possessions. He's lost all ten children. And now he has a debilitating disease that is wasting his body away and he's about to die. I mean, it's very rational for a guy in that situation to be completely convinced, I will never see another good day again. But I think it's, it's wise to remember that those things are in God's hands. And one of the things that depression, despair, intense pain does is it keeps you from seeing the promises of God. It keeps you from seeing the reality of God. It keeps you from seeing those things in front of you that God would bring into your life, okay? You know, it's, it's possible to have a mountain of good coming and not be able to see it. I remember uh, being in Pikes Peak, uh, being on, uh, in Colorado Springs, actually, Colorado, driving down I-25 in Colorado Springs, and fog had set in, and there's a 14,000-foot mountain right there, but I can't see it, you know? I mean, if you'd never been to Colorado, you'd think you're in the plains. You know, I mean, you can't see it. I mean, it's that close. It's that big, but you can't see it. And that's one of the things that pain and suffering do to a person. Job is convinced there is no hope ahead of him. We know that's not true. Job doesn't know that. And in his pain, he can't see the hope. And so one of the major themes of Job's speeches is this whole question of why. Okay, this whole question of why. Job starts out in chapter 3, why? why? Why didn't I just die? Why am I even living? Why did God even bring me into, into being? Why, if my life was going to be this way, if it was going to end this way, if I was going to have this much suffering and this much pain, why did God even bring me into existence? I mean, the, 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 it starts out with this theme of why, and it progresses through all of Job's speeches with, with various questions of why. Why, God? Why are you doing this? Why the length? Why the degree? Why the severity? And the biggest question of all that people tend to ask in suffering is this question. God, why don't you act? Why don't you act? God, why don't you heal them? Why don't you turn this thing around? Why don't you bring me justice? Why don't you provide? Why don't you, why don't you intervene? That's the big question is, why, God, why don't you act? Now, what I want to give to you this morning is I, I think this is the most important thing that I could give to you on a Sunday like this, talking about a subject like this. I want to give you a New Testament gospel answer to that, okay? And here's the gospel answer to that question, okay? And I know it does not answer all the questions, and we're going to get to that. In fact, we're going to end right here. We're going to end right here with this question, why, okay? But I, but I want to, as believers, I want to remind you of something that if you're a Christian today, if you're joined by faith to Jesus, you have this no matter what happens in your life, okay? To the question, why doesn't God act? The answer is, God has acted, okay? 
God has acted in the most drastic, in the most compelling, the most, the most ultimate way to forever end suffering for those who have trusted in Him, okay? God has acted. In fact, He acted in the greatest moment of history when God stepped out of the heavens and into humanity. When God stepped into your sufferings. That's what the gospel is all about. That's what Christmas is about, by the way. is God stepping out of the heavens and into your suffering, into poverty, into hunger, into want, into need. Jesus stepped into human flesh and he experienced all the suffering that we did. Have you lost people? Jesus lost people. His best friend and cousin, John the Baptist, was beheaded in front, you know, near him in the same town. Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus when he wept. A man struck down a good friend in the prime of life. Jesus lost his father, his earthly father, probably before he died. Jesus, like no one ever has, was immersed into the suffering of this world. Nobody's ever experienced more suffering as far as immersed in it than Jesus, okay? His, his entire earthly ministry, who was he surrounded by? He was surrounded by the paralyzed and by by the blind and the lame and the leper and the demonically possessed and the broken and the suffering. Jesus, day after day in his earthly ministry, was immersed in the suffering of mankind. And Jesus healed them as a symbol, as a reminder, as a foreshadow of what he's going to do with your suffering through the cross. Jesus entered into your suffering. Jesus experienced the injustice, the slander, the false accusation, the mocking, the torture, the crucifixion, and the murder of sinful men. Jesus experienced all that. And then he experienced things that not Job, Moses, Elijah, Jonah, or you and I will ever experience, which is the wrath of God for our sins. Jesus took that upon himself. And so true to your memory verse for this week, I hope you read it. I hope you memorized it. He was despised. Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. That's who Jesus was. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, listen to this, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. And later on in verse 10 of the same chapter, it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And so in answering the question why doesn't God act okay when you've had some blow on your life when you've been been toppled over by some disaster and your question in your heart is why didn't God act I want you to know that the ultimate answer there is that he has he has acted in the most definitive way possible that is allowed for you to come into a relationship with Christ, to have your sins forgiven, and to be in a place someday where there is no sin. And if there's no sin, there is no suffering. God has acted. Don't be one of those people who shakes their fist at God saying, why don't you act when, when at the same time you're rejecting the very work of God to alleviate your suffering. Now, Job has three friends who come. Okay, so in verse 11, we read Job's three friends here of, of the evil that's come upon him, and they make an appointment to meet together, and then they come to see him. Now, immediately, we want to say, man, hallelujah, Job's going to get some relief, right? He's going to have some comfort. I mean, he's, he's in the ashes. He's scraping himself with, with clay pots. His wife is saying, curse God and die. I mean, the guy needs some encouragement, right? And so he's got three friends that come to him, and they start out beautifully, okay? 
They, they come, they sit down, they, they show expressions of grief, and they don't open their mouth for seven days. That's awesome, okay? Uh, they do a good job, and then they open their mouth, and they do a terrible job, okay? They fail miserably. In fact, Job calls them later in the book, he calls them miserable comforters. And when God finally shows up and speaks, these guys, God's going to kill them, you know, until Job intercedes for them, all right? So, so what I want to do kind of with the rest of the sermon is I want to unpack the way that they looked at suffering, their theology of suffering, and I don't want us to make the same mistake. And I don't want us to be miserable comforters. You're going to have an opportunity in your life to comfort people. You're, you're going to be put in positions where people have had terrible tragedies. And I want you to do a good job in that and not a bad job in that. So let's pick up with their theology in chapter 4, all right? It's really simple, actually, because these guys don't say different things. They say the same thing, okay? They say the same thing. They start out saying it kind of nice. And then when Job doesn't listen... Okay, when he didn't get in line like they want him to, they start saying it mean. All right, So they start out saying it nice, and then they start saying it mean. So here, here's the nice version. Okay, So chapter 4, here's the first guy, Eliphaz. Chapter 4, verse 7 uh, says, Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright ever cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they're consumed. Okay, now that's a real nice way of saying, kind of around the corner way of saying, hey, Job, I think this is your fault. Okay, you must have done something bad. And that's what he's saying, right? Those who sow, if you, if you plant sin, what are you going to get? You're going to get the consequences of sin, right? I mean, that's what he's saying. And, and so basically the theology of these guys is this, okay? Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And so if something bad's happened to you, you must be a bad person. Now, I heard some giggling. Thank you, Carolyn, because it, it is a silly theology, isn't it? Some of you believe this. Now, maybe you, maybe you won't say you believe it, but when something bad happens to you, you look over at other people, and a lot of times, what do you say? What have I done? What have I done? What have I done to deserve? How many of you ever said, what have I done to deserve this? You ever said that? What have I done to deserve? That's that theology. Now, now here's, the, here's the tricky thing about the book of Job. It's complicated. It's not easy. It doesn't offer an easy answer, okay? But the tricky thing is a lot of what these guys say is true if it's applied in the right way. So let me ask you this. Is it true that sin brings consequences and suffering? Yes, it is. That's a true statement, okay? We can, we can back that up with other scriptures. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he'll also reap. Paul's using the same agricultural image that Eliphaz does. Verse 8. For the one who sows his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. The one who sows his, to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. I mean, I mean we, we understand that. Sin brings consequences. Sin brings suffering. All right, that's a true statement. You know? If I go home this afternoon and I walk in the house and I turn to my wife and I say, woman, take my shoes and rub my feet. Go get me something to eat, woman. You're my servant. Okay, that's not treating my wife as Christ would have me treat her. It's not loving her like Christ loves the church. And I guarantee you there'll be consequences for that sin, all right? So we get that. Let's ramp it up a little. Man comes into Stock Exchange Bank. Jim, your bank's always getting robbed in my sermons. I don't know why. I'm not hoping it happens, but I, 
I said First National Bank of Woodward in the last service. Now I got to thinking, there isn't one here. <laughs> anyway, walks into a bank. Could be any bank. Uh, walks into a bank, holds it at gunpoint. Give me your money. They're not moving fast enough. He guns down two people in cold blood. That's sin. He gets his money, jumps in the getaway car, takes off down 412, headed to Enid. He's driving 100 miles an hour. Police are coming after him, chasing him. In his trying to get away from the police, he loses control of his vehicle, swerves over the median, hits a, hits a mother and two kids in a minivan, kills them instantly. He lives through the crash, but he severs his spinal cord and he has a horrible head injury in which he has headaches the rest of his life. Now, we might, we should, at some point, show compassion to that man. We should pray for him. But I, I, I bet you this, I bet you nobody struggles with why he suffers. I bet, I bet nobody does that. I bet nobody cries out to God, why, why does this man have horrible headaches? You know, Why does he suffer in this way? I mean, I, I just bet nobody, nobody struggles that way. Why? That's one of those instances where we easily connect the dots, right? And then there's lots of those. man who breaks his marriage vows and commits habitual, habitual adultery on his wife and sows all kind of trouble in his life and then he soiled his reputation and he's broken up his marriage and he's got angry children. You know what? Well, we, we connect the dots there. We're like, man, you know, don't, don't do that. Don't sin against God. Trust God. Obey Him, all right? We connect the dots easily with those. But here's what you need to understand. Sin and the consequences of sin are not the answer to why everyone suffers to the degree that they do. Now, could you say that, that ultimately all suffering is caused by sin? Yes, that, that, that's true in the sense of God created a perfect world, right? He created a perfect world in the garden and, and all that was good was there and, and there was no death and there was no cancer and there was no sin. There was no violence. I mean, it was awesome. But man, Adam and Eve said, we don't want that. We don't, want, we don't trust you. We think you're holding back on us, God. We're, we're going we're to fight into the temptation here. And when they did that, then mankind fell. So in, in that, yeah, it, okay. But, see, think about this with me. Do people suffer to the degree they do because of sin? What, what about suffering that doesn't make any sense? And here's where we really go off the track, Okay. Why am I suffering the way I am compared to other people and compared to what I deserve? Let me, let me tell you, those are two dead-end streets, okay? When you try to figure that out, when the lady that lost her baby walks by the nursery full of babies and she says, why do they have their baby and I don't? Or what did I deserve that this calamity has come upon my life? Folks, those are tricky areas that, that are not answered by these guys' theology. Okay? See, if, if the only tool in your toolbox, that's the thing with Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, they got one tool in their box. And their one tool is all suffering comes about from sin. Okay? And, and, and they don't say anything different. They just say it harder, okay? So the first round, they're kind of gentle on Job. But then when he, when he comes back and says, guys, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not a sinner, but I, I am saying I've done nothing to deserve this sin, this suffering, this amount of suffering. Then they just start saying it harder. 
Bildad, Job chapter 8. Now listen how cruel this is. Verse 3, does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. That's pretty cruel, isn't it? What's he saying? Your ten kids are dead because they sinned. The final speech of Eliphaz is brutal. Job 22, verse 5. Is not your evil abundant? There's no end to your iniquities. He's 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 telling this to Job. You've exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You've given no water to the weary to drink. You've withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land and and the favored man lived in it. That's, That's Job. You've sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Man, has Job really done all that? Do you believe Eliphaz? I tend not to believe him. Why? Because twice God has already said Job is a blameless, upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So why is Eliphaz saying all that stuff? He's supposed to be his friend. It's because his theology only has one tool. His one tool is, if you're suffering this bad, you must have done something wrong. You know why I think people are drawn to that? I think people are drawn to that because... If, if Job did something wrong, then maybe I can avoid suffering by doing something right. Huh? You think anybody thinks that? I'm going to go to church. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be obedient. I'm going to buckle my seatbelt. I'm going to take my medicine. I'm not going to eat french fries, you know, and then nothing bad will happen to me. I think that's why we're drawn to that. Real quickly, I don't have time for everything I've got here, so I'm going to try to pick and choose here. Real quickly, let me show you what Jesus says about these guys' theology, okay? He, he completely unpacks it. So Luke 13, here's what Jesus says about the whole idea that if bad things happen to you, then you must have done worse things than everybody else, okay? Nobody's arguing that everybody sinned and that suffering comes from sin. But what we're arguing is if really bad things happened, then does that mean you did worse things than other people, okay? So Luke 13 There was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. All right, this was a mass murder, okay? So so Pilate comes in and murders a bunch of people here, okay? And And he answers and says to them, do you think that these Galileans are worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Verse four. Or of those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell. Okay, so there was a, a building that fell in Jerusalem, killed 18 people. All right? And so, so the people around there, they're saying, well, those 18 people must have been bad people. They must have did some horrible stuff because this horrible thing happened to them. Jesus says, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. John chapter 9 gets real personal. Okay? John chapter 9 the disciples and Jesus are walking through uh, an area. He says, as he passed by, he saw a blind, man, a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him. You'd think the disciples would have read the book of Job already, but I don't know. They didn't get the message if they did. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Okay, so here's a, here's a guy who's been blind ever since birth. And the question of the disciples is, all right, somebody must have sinned to cause this. Who was it? Was it this guy or was it his parents? By the way, parents, you ever feel guilty because of the calamity of your children? I've seen that. Here's what Jesus says, verse 3. 
was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Whoa! Okay, now Jesus gives us a total another angle on suffering. Okay? So does all suffering come from what people have done, that they just deserve that? Well, no. There's times when suffering comes that God might display His glory through that person. In other words, God's fixing to do something good in that person through their suffering. Okay? So remember, God, God's got fences here, okay? And he, he, doesn't, he doesn't pull the fence clear back to no evil. Why? Because we'd all be gone, okay? So he allows some. And what, what, is, what does John say here? John say, God, God allows some suffering because he's going to do something awesome through it. First Peter picks that same theology up. In verse 19, he says, This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. You see, my friends, there is a suffering that's unjust, okay, in the sense that we didn't didn't do anything to cause it. Verse 20, For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it if you endure? Okay, so in other words, there are times where you sin and the direct consequence is your suffering. All right, well, there's, there's there's no credit to you when you endure that. But, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then he goes on to give Jesus as the perfect example of enduring suffering that's unjust. Verse 21, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, what did Jesus do? He didn't threaten but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, okay? So Jesus suffered unjustly. Jesus was like Job in that he suffered in ways that he did not deserve, okay? Jesus actually never sinned. He didn't deserve any suffering, okay? But Jesus suffered, and when he suffered, he entrusted himself to God who judges justly, which, by the way, is what Job's going to end up doing. I wish I had time to unpack Psalm 73 Psalm 73 is a beautiful, beautiful psalm. Um, I love it. Um, it really kind of gives us a great picture of, um, of the way we think sometimes. So I don't have time, time to read the whole thing, but if you have time after lunch, just read Psalm 73. It won't take you but a couple minutes. But at the beginning of Psalm 73, the psalmist is looking around, and he's like, why, why, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? You ever do that? You ever look across the street and you got your wicked neighbor, you know? He parks his oversized crane in your driveway, you know, and you can't get out, and you just put up with it, you know, and he's always throwing wild parties and leaving his beer cans in your yard and uh, be take, keeping you up all night, and his dog comes over and bites your kids, and I mean, this guy's just a mean guy, and yet he prospers, you know. His kid's a valedictorian, you know. Your kid struggles to spell, they're dyslexic, and, you know, his kids are all going to Oxford and Cambridge, you know, and he's racked with money and prosperity, and his wife's great, and your wife's sick, and, and the psalmist is looking around he's saying when why does this happen and then verse 17 is a pivotal turning point it says until i went to the sanctuary of god and then i discerned their end you see remember we talked about vantage point so in psalm 73 god kind of spins this guy around and says whoa, whoa whoa you're not seeing the whole picture and then he says in verse 18, Truly this, you set them on slippery places, you make them fall into ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away by utter terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you arouse yourself, you'll despise them as phantoms. Okay, And so, so the Bible, again, gives us many reasons in which people suffer that is not directly related to their amount of sin. Let me encourage you 
in a couple ways about how to think of suffering and how to comfort others who are in suffering. Number one, be careful about oversimplified answers that wrap things up nice and tidy. Okay, let me just spill the beans here. You're not going to get nice and tidy with suffering, okay? You're just not. You know, we, we all like to point to passages in the Bible where things wrap up real nice. You know, like Joseph. Isn't Joseph a great story that wraps up real nice? You know, I mean, here's a kid who's betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery, and, and, and he, he works real hard and tries to do his best, and then, and then he's falsely accused by this wicked woman, and he gets thrown into jail, and 17 years, you know, of, of, of just, Lord, why? What are you doing? And then finally... 17 years, he interprets a couple dreams, but those guys forget him. And then finally, the Pharaoh has a dream, and he's brought up out of the dungeon, and he interprets the Pharaoh's dream, and he sets a course for Egypt, and he's exalted the prime minister, and he rescues his people. They're all like, yes. Okay, but there there wasn't any yes for 17 years. You see, when we don't always have the vantage point. Don't, Don't try to wrap everything up neat and tidy. For everybody's life when they're suffering. Number two, don't don't feel like you have to defend God. You know, I think a lot of what happens with these three guys in the book of Job that really turns ugly is they feel they ought to defend God. They feel like Job's saying, look, I didn't do anything. This is not right. I want to talk to God. I want to come before God. And they're like, no, you you need to admit what you did, Job. And Job's like, I didn't do anything. (laughs) And I think these guys get so mean because they feel like they have to defend God. You know what, guys? We don't have to defend God. Psalm 115.3, God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. God will make all things right. I, I don't think I have to defend him. Number three, be careful not to neglect compassion, mercy, sharing in people's grief. Let me, let me remind you what these guys come to do. Okay, these three guys. Verse, um, chapter 2, verse 11. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. What happened? <laughs> I mean, they started out good, right? Then they really got off track. Okay, now I, I, want, you, I want you guys to rem- remember, remember our job when people are in suffering. Please be mindful of this. You, you can blow it really easy when people have had a tragedy. Okay? I could tell you story after story of people who've left churches, they've dropped out of small groups, they've been mad at God for years because they, they felt like they weren't comforted well. Okay, now, now let, me, let me take the other side of that. This is really hard. I mean, there's times where you can say something that is well-meaning and true even, but it's, it's, it's not comforting, right? Someone loses someone very close to them. Maybe a young wife who husband struck down in the prime of life. Well, Mammy's in a better place. If he's a Christian, is that true? It is. Does that make that wife feel better? Probably not. Yeah, he is in a better place, and I'm stuck here trying to raise three kids alone. Be careful. Finally, be careful about why. Okay? 
You know, one of the most interesting things in the book of Job is this. Job gets his day before God. We're going to get to that next week. It's the, it's the most fantastic part of the book of Job. Okay? God comes down, and he and, he and Job have a conversation. And, and, and God speaks for chapters. Okay? I mean, it's chapters. We're not going to be able to get to all of it. We're just going to have to pick pieces out of it. Okay? You know what God never says in that entire time? He never tells Job why. You and I know why. We read chapter one, you know? We, we had the book, right? We, we know well, there's a conversation in heaven and, and Satan was, you know, chopping at the glory of God and, 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 and saying Job's faith wasn't real and God was proving it was real. I mean, we know why. We know the end. From what we can tell in the book, Job never gets that answer. Let me ask you a question. Are, are you okay if you never know why? Now, I'm not saying you won't. I, I think I've experienced things in my life, and I couldn't see clearly why that happened until later. And then, oh, okay. Thank you, God. Paul's thorn in the flesh. Remember that? 2 Corinthians 12. You know, he has this thorn in the flesh. God, take it away. What? Take it away. And then he comes to realize that he needs it, you know? That it's actually producing good in his life, and he's able to rejoice in that thorn. So the, I, I'm not telling you you'll never know why. Sometimes you do know why. But if you're like Job, you may not ever know why. And so now here, here, comes the, here comes the big question. Is God still God? Is he still good? Can you still trust him if you don't ever know why? It really, we're kind of back to our same question, aren't we, at the very beginning? Will a man serve God for nothing, for no reason? So if, if you never know that this payoff is coming for this suffering, if you never know that, will you still serve him? Will you still love him? Will you still trust him? Will you still be good? You know the beautiful thing about us as Christians? You know what you have that Job didn't have? You have that beautiful picture of what Jesus did on the cross to take away your suffering. You know what you have that Job didn't have, folks? You may not have specific answers about specific trials, but you know what you do know? You do know what God's going to do through your trials, right? Let me, let me, let me give you a couple. We're going to finish on these. Romans eight eighteen. For I consider that the sufferings of his present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You hear that? God says, look, let me tell you how this deal is going to end. You stack up all your sufferings and you stack up all the glory that's coming and I'm telling you, you won't be able to see the top of the glory and, and, and the suffering pile that looked like a mountain before will look like a small hill. 2 Corinthians. Same thing. Chapter 4. Verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction, that's probably not something to say to Job when he's in the middle of it, by the way, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Again, we're seeing the end. I mean, aren't you glad for a vantage point in the gospel? Aren't you glad you have the New Testament to see how this is going to end? I don't want to be a miserable comforter. I don't want to be that. 
I remember um, in the midst of Emma losing babies, uh, she had many miscarriages. Many of you were around for that. And uh, I remember she was in the hospital. She'd had a DNC. And um, I, I was really stupid about comfort. I probably still am, but I'm trying to learn. A book of Job's helping me. Um, but I'm kind of an answer guy, you know. And I'm kind of a, hey, let's look on the bright side. I'm kind of a, hey, you know, let's, let's, you know, let's go forward. God's going to do something good. And so that's what I was giving to my wife. And, and honestly, it wasn't helping her at all. I think it was actually hurting her. And I remember a Lincoln, a Lincoln lady. She and her husband came in. And she did not say a word the entire time she was in the room. She came in directly and and wrapped her arms around my wife, and she just cried. She sat up a little bit later, didn't say a word. Her husband said a few things, encouraged us, I think, with a scripture, prayed, and they left. That was probably the best thing anybody did for my wife. It was a good lesson to me, too. Sometimes there aren't easy answers, guys, are there? Sometimes we got to walk with people through the suffering. Let's be good comforters. Father, we know that um, suffering is going to come. Father, we're thankful for your fences. God, I'm thankful that it didn't come this morning. God, I'm thankful that um, we're here today and, God, our, our lives are to some degree intact. God, they're not completely unraveled like Job's. And, God, we know that your grace has given us that. And Father, we ask you to we ask you to protect us. We ask you to protect our faith. We ask you, Father, to, to give us grace when trial hits, when trouble hits. Father, we, we pray that you would give us the foundation of the scriptures, that we would see clearly that the fog of depression and sorrow would not cloud out the great promises that we have in Christ. Jesus, we are most thankful today that you entered into our suffering that you carried our sorrows, that you bore our grief, that you were crushed, that we might, we might come to a place where there is no sin and no suffering. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand, please? And we're gonna-